welcome to Red, White, and Confused. I'm your host, Heather Evans. This week, our attention turns to something that's been in the news recently, which is redistricting reform. You may all remember that back during the 2020 election, not only did 75% of Virginia's voters make their way to a ballot box or vote by mail for president and our congressional representatives, but we also had an opportunity to voice our opinion on an amendment to our state constitution that created a bipartisan redistricting commission. That vote shifted power away from the state legislature and to this redistricting commission composed of state legislators and citizens. And the districts you see now are the product of that process. Virginia's new redistricting commission didn't come close to agreement. So in the end, the responsibility to draw the new district boundaries fell to the Supreme Court of Virginia. In this current Supreme Court term, the court will hear Moore versus Harper, which is a case that surrounds the drawing of legislative districts. The question that will be asked in this case is whether the state Supreme Court can get involved in the drawing of legislative districts. And depending on what the court decides, this could have wide reaching effects for all states and the redistricting process. So to talk about how redistricting works and whether having an independent commission do the work is a good thing, I've invited two guests on the show today who do research in this area, Chris Warshaw and Eric McGee. Chris Warshaw is an associate professor of political science at George Washington University. His research focuses on public opinion, elections, and political representation. He is the co-author of the book, Dynamic Democracy, Public Opinion, Elections, and Policymaking in the American States, which is coming out this November. Eric McGee is a senior fellow at the Public Policy Institute of California, where he focuses on elections, legislative behavior, political reform, and surveys and polling. So thanks to both of you for being on the show today. Thanks Thanks for having me. So I think the best place for us to start is to talk about the current process nationwide. I know a lot of my students tune in. A lot of people have questions like, what and how does this even work? Uh, So how does redistricting work? Uh, Well, the, it, it, it depends on the state you're talking about, right? So the The traditional way that uh, the lines were redrawn was um, the state legislature in each state would would, um, take care of that process. Um, It wasn't always clear at at certain times in American history whether the districts would even be redrawn at all. There were many states in the early part of the 20th century that that if it became too complicated to redraw the districts because there was too, the the political fight was too complex, they would just not redraw them and the, the same districts would continue forward. The Supreme Court in the early 60s said, no, 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 you can't do that because the districts are going to be sort of out of whack in terms of population. And you can't have one district be a much larger population than another because the one with the much larger population is going to be um, uh, is going to be essentially underrepresented. You're going to have more people represented by just one person than the, the district that has fewer people. This was a principle they called one person, one vote. So from that point forward, uh, it became essentially... Um, mandated by the Constitution that districts be redrawn after every census and when you had an idea of what those population balances ought to be, right? So as that has unfolded over the ensuing decades, many states have adopted their own 
processes for managing this, this um, mandated redistricting. There's actually a number of states that hand the responsibility in some capacity to a commission um, of some sort. Many state legislatures still draw these districts as well. In most of the states that hand it off to some kind of commission, that commission is composed either of appointees who are by the state legislature or actually members of the state legislature themselves. It's sort of like a separate committee within the legislature that, that handles the process. Um, only relatively recently have we seen entirely independent commissions um, in states like Arizona and California and Colorado and Michigan, where the, even the members of the commission are not appointed by um, the state legislature, they're completely independent of the political process. And so we'll get into how that might matter, but, um, but, but that's kind of the landscape. There's a lot of different approaches, but, um, but there is a mandate that the districts be redrawn. So every state is kind of trying to figure out how to do that best for them. So when we talk about the districts, do we mean for Congress or do we mean for the state legislature as well? Both. Um, and then that you can have different processes for redrawing districts down to the local level, right? Because those also, according to those same Supreme Court decisions, those also have to be redrawn. They also have to be equal in population. So, uh, and, and those can be different processes for different, um, for different plans that are drawn. So, uh, you know, in California where I am, for instance, there's, there are some local uh, jurisdictions that now draw their, their districts through uh, an independent commission process like this, like is done at the state level. In some states, the state legislature redraws uh, the state legislative districts, but there's a commission that draws the congressional districts or vice versa, right? So it really depends on, on which state you're talking about and which particular plan you're talking about. In the states where the state legislature is drawing the districts, when does the governor get involved? In most states, the way it works is it's normal legislation and the governor gets to veto or, or sign it. And so if the governor and the state legislature are of different parties, they would either have to negotiate to reach a compromise or in, in some cases they would fail to compromise and the courts would step in to redraw a map. In a couple of states, it works differently um, where the governor doesn't get to veto and the state legislature just passes a plan. Um, but that's pretty unusual. In most cases, it's just normal legislation. So in hearing this, right, that like, okay, so this is how redistricting works. Sounds like parties would really complicate this whole situation. So can you tell us a little bit about why this process is so heated politically? Well, I think, you know, it's high stakes. So the, in a, our current nationalized environment, the partisan lean of a district is the biggest determinant of how, who wins or loses the election. And so the, if you can skew the maps to systematically favor your party by packing your, the opposing party supporters into a small number of districts, or maybe cracking them across districts so that you can win a disproportionate number of districts, that really hands you a, a really large advantage going into the elections and into the subsequent policymaking process. Now, I know that there have been a few states recently, Virginia being one of them, that have been, like, been moving their process out of the hands of their state legislatures. Why do you think there is a push for this right now? A lot of it just has to do with um, the history of this kind of effort to, like Chris was just mentioning, to to produce a disproportionate outcome for your side, right? Sort of to to game the system. Um, there's also, I think, separate from this effort by parties to give themselves more seats um, just through the redistricting process. There's also often an effort to just protect 
incumbents of both parties. Um, often if, if both parties have to negotiate a deal, that's the deal they'll negotiate, right? Is to just agree to protect all the sitting incumbents and that makes the districts uncompetitive, right? And so there's been this push um, over time and it's been building um, over the ensuing decades since really since the um, Supreme Court's one person, one vote decisions um, when since, uh, since the, uh, the redistricting has had to occur, right? There's, there's been this push to try to make the process more fair and more competitive and to avoid those sorts of extremes. Uh, and it's really picked up pace, I think, in um, in like the last decade uh, or so in the wake of the 2010 redistricting process where there was just a lot of this kind of um, monkeying around with the districts, a lot more than there had been in the past. I think in part because as Chris was saying, the, the partisan lean of a district is much more predictive of how it's gonna turn out. And so that makes, that suddenly gives you a lever to pull um, that back in the days when parties were, were you know, party loyalty was much more, much squishier. There was no guarantee that if you drew the districts a certain way based on the partisan lean, that that's how that plan would, would play out. Now it's, a, it's much easier to have that predictive power. And so it's much more tempting to kind of monkey with the process. And the, so in response, there's been more of a, of a pushback and an effort to reform the process to avoid those kinds of outcomes. So when we think about the Supreme Court, I know eventually in our conversation today, I want to talk about the latest case, but how has the Supreme Court come down or felt about the general idea of partisan redistricting or partisan gerrymandering? I mean, are they are they okay with it? Are they giving it back to the states? Like how how have they decided on those cases? In the early 2000s was maybe a hint that they were interested in getting involved. Um, and there were, in the wake of that, there was a lot of work on developing new social science standards to measure partisan um, gerrymandering and the partisan advantage in the district lines. And in the 2018 and 19, the Supreme Court took a, a case that you know, might've led to the development of a national standard. But in the end, the Supreme Court kind of pulled back from that and said that partisan gerrymandering wasn't actually justiciable in the federal courts. So they really left it to the states to make the determinations about um, whether gerrymandering had gone too far. So I know that you're both doing research in this area, um, looking at like independent commissions versus states that don't have them. My, my first question is, I mean, as a political scientist, I would think that, well, giving the ability to draw these lines to somebody other than the people who would like them drawn in their own favor is a good thing. Um, that perhaps that that would lead to something a bit more fair. Do you all find that in your work? Uh, yeah, so we we've looked at this with all the the current the plans that were drawn in the in the current cycle, just about all of them. We're, we're both involved in a in um, this effort called Plan Score, which is a website that uh, where you can upload plans um, that have been that you've drawn elsewhere and have them be scored on a variety of these um, of these partisan fairness metrics that are out there, including the ones that were um, at issue in the case that, that Chris just mentioned. And so that um, uh, we can use that website to, to easily score all the plans that were drawn in this, um, in this last redistricting cycle. And we do in fact find that, that um, commissions draw fairer, more balanced maps um, than, uh, than when the legislature, the state legislature draws them. Um, so there's there's no question that they they end up and they're often drawn they're, they're often constructed these commissions are constructed in such a way as to make sure that there's 
that there are representatives of, of all the parties who are at the table and who can influence the, the drawing of the plan. So it's maybe not a surprise to, to find that, that the plans that are drawn are more balanced. We also find that they generally yield more competitive districts as well than plans drawn by politicians. I think earlier there'd been kind of a debate among political scientists whether that was true. Because I think there, you know, there, your theoretical prior is a little bit less strong than it is for fair districts. But in fact, you know, we do find that commissions also draw more competitive maps in general. So I was reading some of your work uh, before talking with you all today, and I noticed that you discuss what's called the efficiency gap. Would one of you like to talk a little bit about what that is and how you measure it? Uh, so the efficiency gap is a metric that um, I came up with in a, in a paper about eight, nine years ago now. Um, and then I, I teamed up with this uh, brilliant um, legal scholar, Nick Stephanopoulos, um, and, and uh, we turned it into a, a, a legal test um, uh, that would try and identify gerrymandering. And the principle behind the efficiency gap is uh, when you're when you're trying to draw a plan that that benefits your own party, as Chris kind of alluded to earlier, what you're looking to do is um, is to win your seats as efficiently as possible. You want the margin of victory in your seat to be as narrow as is comfortable to know that you're going to win that seat. If you have more people, like if you once you've cleared that sort of fifty percent threshold to win. You don't really need a lot more supporters in that district. You could take supporters you might otherwise put in that district and put them in another district and help you win in that district too, right? And um, and conversely, you want your the opposing party to end up if it's going to win any seats at all. You want it to win its seats by overwhelming margins, where you know it's just it's got a lot of supporters in those districts who um, are not necessary to win those particular seats. And it turns out when you distribute things in this way. You get um, you get an advantage. It translates almost directly into extra seats, and the efficiency gap is a way of identifying sort of an ideal point um, in that in that balancing process that is fair, um, where you're not you're not actually quote unquote wasting uh, your supporters any more than the opposing party is, and that ends up producing a little bit of a of a disproportionate advantage for the majority party. So it's not just, you know, it's not just that for every extra percent of vote share, you get an extra percent of seat share. It's a little bit more than that. So you get a little boost, which is kind of traditional in our um, single member district system, but it doesn't give you sort of just anything that you want, right? And so it, it, it's kind of a constraint that you can place on, on the process. Um, and we proposed that uh, constraint as, as um, a way of trying to tamp down on this um, partisan gerrymandering and the Supreme Court didn't bite. They also didn't bite on a bunch of other ideas as well. So it wasn't just a wasn't just the efficiency gap, but um, but it's still that and some other metrics continue to be part of the discussion and the and the, um, the debate around these plans. And that's the idea behind plan scores to provide that information so that people can kind of decide for themselves whether they think uh, it's a good idea to have a plan be biased in one direction or another. Yeah, I, I think that's fascinating, actually. Um, I think the development of the efficiency gap and other metrics to quickly measure the bias of new maps is, has enabled scholars and, and, and advocates to sort of play a bigger role this cycle. But it's also played a big role in some state Supreme Court decisions. So I think that, you know, in previous cycles, 
one of the reasons that state courts really couldn't police partisan gerrymandering is that we didn't have a, a sort of variety of robust metrics to evaluate the bias of maps. And I think the efficiency gap and other metrics that have been developed have really helped with that. Okay, so I have a question about parties and gerrymandering. With all the data that you're looking at across the years that you're looking at, is either party worse for this? Well, I think what we saw in, in traditionally both parties of gerrymandered. This isn't a one, you know, a problem for one party or another. In fact, some of the most sort of aggressive gerrymanders in modern history were actually conducted by Southern Democrats in the 1970s and 80s. And that was partly how Democrats were able to hold on to power in Southern states for so long, even as the South was sort of turning against them in, in many, many levels of government. Um, but in recent years, I think in, in the 2010 cycle, which really set the stage for today, Republicans were far more aggressive than Democrats were. Um, and that gave them a really lasting advantage over the past decade. And then I think in, in over the last year or two, Democrats also had some pretty aggressive gerrymanders. And I think that you know, both you know, as many scholars predicted, I think both parties um, were were pretty aggressive about carving out partisan advantage where they could over the past cycle, and that's one of the reasons why the establishment of more nonpartisan commissions and other tools to sort of take power away from politicians, I think, has played a big role in the, in making maps more fair. That you know, politicians from both parties, when you give them the power and the incentives to do it, um, are probably going to gerrymander. Yeah, it's, and it's you, also worth mentioning that the you know, until this uh, Supreme Court decision a few years ago that we've been talking about, um, it was really kind of amb ambiguous whether this, the, the court would try to police partisan gerrymandering. And without that clarity, um, there are a lot of states that, that might have taken the plunge and been more aggressive, kind of pulled back a little bit and and weren't willing to sort of um, uh, push the envelope and now it's now it's easier to to push that envelope because you know that there's at least at the federal level there's not going to be um, any consequences. That's a great point. So I want to interrupt our conversation for just a moment. If you're driving around, listen to the radio and you're like, oh my gosh, this is a brilliant conversation. Who in the world is Heather talking to today? Hi everybody. This is Red White and Confused and you are listening to a conversation between me and Chris Warshaw and Eric McGee, and we're talking about redistricting, and also we're going to get into competitiveness in just a moment. So Chris is an associate professor of political science at George Washington University, and he has a book coming out, Dynamic Democracy, Public Opinion, Elections, and Policymaking in the American States. It's coming out in November. Eric is a senior fellow at the Public Policy Institute of California, and he also focuses on elections and legislative behavior. So I want to now talk about competitiveness. Chris, you mentioned that when we have these independent commissions draw lines, we get more competitive districts. So why would we want that? Okay, and I, I'm, I already know the answer to this, but I want you to say it for everyone else who's driving around. Why would we want competitive districts? Both incentivize politicians to pay attention to what their constituents want, to pay attention to all of us. And also that if all, you know, if the public were to shift our views and become systematically more liberal or more conservative, that we can toss the politicians out of office, right? So if you have districts that are so uncompetitive that neither of those can happen, then, you know, you can really get this calcified political system that isn't very democratic, I think, in a small d kind of sense. Yeah. And um, I was thinking about those people who might particularly like might want to toss their hats into the ring. Do people want to run in districts that are uncompetitive? 
Yeah, the answer is, you know, obviously, no, it's harder to incentivize high quality candidates, particularly challengers, to run in um, uncompetitive elections. And as a result, one of the things that a co-author and I found um, in, a, in a paper was that in when maps are gerrymandered to favor one party, what you typically see is that the other, the disadvantaged party, like, doesn't run strong candidates because, you know, they can't, they, it's harder for them to win. So, like, why would they toss their hat into the ring? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's also worth noting, however, that uh, there can't you can have a plan. It's, it seems like it's it would be impossible to have a plan that that's too competitive. But there is such a thing. Um, if, at the extreme, if um, it, like if you can imagine a plan where every single district is has the same basic partisan makeup, then a, a small shift in the overall vote share could flip every district all at once, right? So that would be the extreme, sort of winner take all at the statewide level. Um, would be the maximally competitive outcome. And that's not super desirable either. You want to have some amount of change in, in the legislature or in Congress in response to changing opinion, but not just sort of the maximum amount of change because that, that's also sort of um, destabilizing uh, and suggests a, a shift of, of perspective that um, is, is uh, excessive given the amount of change in opinion that's actually occurred in, in the broader electorate. So it's, it's really about what you're trying to do is make sure that that there's a kind of a balanced. I like to think of it as kind of a balance between um, people who are strong partisans and people who are swing voters. Um, you want to make sure that that each of them has some say in the in the outcomes of the election. And if you have uncompetitive districts, it means those swing voters really don't have any leverage, have no say. They're changing their their votes from one election to the next, and nothing is happening, right? Um, but you also don't want the extreme where only the swing voters get to say what happens, right? So. Yeah, and I, I think about those effects on the public too. So it's, you know, with competitive elections, you're more likely to have higher voter turnout. People are going to know a little bit more about their elected officials. They're going to know things that, that, that's happening in government. Without those elections, I think people are kind of asleep most of the time. And it's like, unless there's an election happening, then they wake up. And then they're like, oh, wait, now my representative is doing this. And, oh, I should probably feel something about this. And if you don't have that check, I think people just kind of like go through the motions. Right now in this district, we are kind of going through the motions. We have an election happening, but it, it isn't competitive. And uh, my students are out currently surveying people to find out if they even know that there's a competitor in the election. And most people don't. So that it'd be great if this was a more competitive district. Now, at the top of the show, I mentioned the Supreme Court case that's getting ready to come up, which is more v. Harper. What can you tell the listeners about this case? Why is this case important? Well, so there, the uh, neither one of us is a legal scholar, but um, that's so it's important to make that um, caveat at the, at the beginning. However, the, uh, the the essence of the case is there's been all these state level decisions uh, at and in supreme courts at uh, state level that have actually overturned partisan gerrymanders in in recent years there's also a bunch of commissions as we've talked about in a variety of states that independent commissions in some cases that that are making the decisions about how these maps are drawn there is a theory out there a legal theory that says that the constitution the way that it's phrased requires that the state legislature specifically be the one to draw the districts and it cannot actually be anybody other than the state legislature that draws the districts, no matter what process ends up putting the decision in the hands of somebody else. So that would mean, at the extreme, it would mean no commissions, and it would mean no uh, state courts, because neither one of those is a state legislature in the, in the strictest sense, right? 
So if this basic principle is adopted by the court, it would mean, you know, essentially an end to judicial state level judicial review for um, for these plans, and it would mean an end to these independent commissions. And which party right now has more of an upper hand in the redistricting process? I think in in Republicans continue to have a small advantage at the congressional level in um, redistricting, and probably at the state level, they have a, maybe a slightly larger advantage. But in both cases, I think it's a smaller pro-Republican advantage than 10 years ago, where in 2012, you know, Democrats won the majority of the votes for Congress, yet we had a pretty large Republican um, majority in the House. Um, and obviously, they were, you know, we had a Republican speaker and, and all of that. Um, so I think that, you know, while there does continue to be a Republican advantage, overall, the maps are, are more fair than they used to be. Now, I'm going to ask you both the <laughs> crystal ball question. Are you ready? All right. So we're in a midterm election. It's 2022. We've been talking about the House. Which party takes the House? And do you see the majority being very large? Like, do you think they're going to get a bunch of seats? Do you think they're only going to have a slim majority? What do you think? Well, as obviously history suggests that the the out party in midterm elections, which this year is the Republicans, the ones that don't control the presidency, typically does extremely well in midterm elections um, and, you know, will pick up a couple dozen seats. So, you know, I think that based on that history, there's a lot of reasons to think Republicans probably will take the House this year, even though perhaps Democrats still lead on the generic ballot in a lot of polls. So I think you know, my best guess is that probably Republicans will get 225 or maybe 230 seats in the House. How about you, Eric? Yeah, I think that's probably a reasonable prediction. I think the hard, the harder part is to predict the, the actual number of seats, because mm-hmm. that tends to depend on so many, I mean, so many different factors, including a lot of the ones that we've been discussing here um, uh, on the show today. So uh, that typically, just historically, it's harder to predict the actual seat share. The vote share seems more like it's going to be a few percentage points, maybe um, in the Republican favor. Um, it's it's hard to say for certain yet, but that would certainly be consistent with um, historical trends. And and I think the the thing that people really care about is who's going to have the majority of seats. And just historically. Um, the out party gained seats in the midterm with um, just astonishing frequency. And the margin that Democrats have right now is so narrow that it makes it really tough to imagine a world in which they hold on to the majority. Not impossible, you know, nothing's impossible. There's no like law, law of physics that says that they're gonna, they're gonna lose the majority, but it, it's, it seems pretty likely. Yeah, it would, it would be an historical outlier if Democrats were able to retain control of the house. Yeah. So you mentioned that there is a program you've been putting plans into. My students always want to get involved with redistricting. They'll be like, oh my God, why are you letting the state legislature draw the lines? Just let us draw the lines. Is it possible for random plans to be submitted to this this program to see if they do a better job than the state legislature? Yeah, the cool part about this website that we've helped create called planscore.org is that you can upload any redistricting plan you want. It could be a congressional plan, a state legislative plan, even um, a local government plan. And it'll tell you a lot of details about the plan, including which party it favors, um, the number of Democratic and Republican seats that we think the plan would elect, um, and even stuff about the, the compactness of the districts, the racial composition of districts. 
Um, so you can really holistically evaluate a, a plan across a wide range of different dimensions. That is so cool. So we're going to have to do this and we're going to have to submit something to see how well we do and how well we stack up to everybody else. <laughs> That's great. Okay. So my final question is at the end of the day, why is the redistricting process so important? Chris, would you like to take this one? Sure. Well, I think often we, you know, we think about politics as sort of, you know, almost like a, like a game or a sport, you know, Democrats, Democrats versus Republicans, kind of like you're rooting for the Yankees or the Phillies or, you know, the Nationals in D.C. Um, but at the end of the day, this stuff has real policy consequences. And if your party can systematically gain an advantage in the redistricting process, you know, that can give you the ability to shape policies in your state many years into the future. Um, so, you know, even if, even if, you know, regardless of the issue you care about, whether it's abortion, um, taxes, gun, gun rights, or gun control, for each of these issues, the redistricting process has massive um, consequences well into the future. Thank you both for being on the show and thanks to everyone for listening. If you missed any piece of Red, White, and Confused today, you can catch up anytime on podcast, on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you listen in. And you can listen in again on 90.7 WEHC on Thursdays at six and Sundays at one. If you enjoyed today's program, feel free to share it with your friends and head over to our Facebook page to let us know. Have a great week, everybody.